Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I am grateful for you listening to the 22nd episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal, as always, to be worth your time. This week, we'll do that with some insight here at the top on two of the biggest things in Kansas City sports right now. Some questions from you and answers from me and some audio you can't get anywhere else this week from Chiefs coach Andy Reid. Continued thanks to everybody who's relatively new to the podcast, hopefully with a much better experience now that we're out from behind the paywall and free and available everywhere. Uh, I welcome you to check out some of our past episodes, uh, everything from Brett Veach explaining how the Chiefs manage the salary cap with all these big contract extensions, Peter Vermees telling the story of being the muscle behind the highest performing Jiffy Lube Bay on the East Coast, and Dayton Moore and his top assistants going through a mock of how they evaluate talent for potential trade acquisitions and signings. This is all stuff that doesn't exist anywhere else. I hope you find it worth not just your time, but a five-star rating and review. That helps me and maybe even telling a friend. At the top here, we're gonna focus on two major trends. The first is Adalberto Mondesi's continued struggles. The second is the Chiefs season opener next week, six days from now, you guys, against the Texans. Uh, first, Mondesi. I got a column on this up on KansasCity.com right now. Um, obviously, I hope you read it. But for now, I wanna emphasize one of the major points here. If Mondesi does not become a productive and at least like borderline star, it will be a massive underperformance in terms of talent. I started covering the Royals in 2006, and he is the most physically talented player I've seen in that time. More than Lorenzo Cain, more than Zach Greinke, more than Eric Hosmer, more than all of them. Uh, to not get a good player out of this combination of just speed, power, hand-eye, instinct, it would just be a tremendous miss. From what I can tell, the Royals are doing what they can. You know, Mondesi even, he's doing what he can. He takes extra swings. Uh, a lot off the slider machine. I know you guys are curious about that. Uh, he watches video, including from 2018, when stardom seemed right around the corner. Uh, he's got smart people to work with, dedicated people. You know, Mike Matheny, Pedro Grafalo, Terry Bradshaw. Great examples in the clubhouse, too. I know there's a segment of Royals fans who want Mondesi gone yesterday, right? Uh, and just, you know, he's a bust, whatever. But, you know, those are the same people they were probably demanding Alex Gordon be gone at the same age. Mike Moustakis. You know, uh, baseball players develop unpredictably. And, you know, maybe Mondesi can't cut it. I'm not saying, you know, stick with him forever because it's going to work. But, you know, the answer to whether he can be a star or a bust or somewhere in between just hasn't been made definitive yet. You know, what I see with him, and this is part of what I got into in the column, but I just want to highlight it here. What I, I, A lot of you guys see this. A scout who I texted with last week sees this too. He just, he looks defeated mentally. Uh, he just does. And, you know, he did long before the other day um, on Wednesday when he didn't start for the first time all year. Uh, you know, Matheny said it was because he sensed frustration in Mondesi for the first time the day before. And, you know, that's what the manager should say. But, you know, Matheny's smart. He knows this has been a, you know, a growing problem for a while. And, you know, honestly, um, that is the most discouraging part. You know, you, you can work on laying off bad pitches, right? Um, you can shorten your swing to, you know, catch up to fastballs and give yourself an extra blink to recognize a breaking pitch. You can, you know, lower your hands. You can widen your stance. You can cut down on your strike. You can do like a million different things to give yourself, you know, a new look or a better chance in the box. But what I don't know that you can do is to fix a man's confidence. You know, Alex Gordon is a stubborn SOB, right? Uh, same with Mike Moustakas. And those guys, like they had moments of doubt, right? They had moments of, 
you know, feeling defeated. But I just, I, I guess we're going to find out how much of, of, of the stubbornness, how much of that Mondesi has it. You know, baseball people talk a lot about like handling failure. And that's a critical skill, um, not just in baseball, but in life, I guess, as well. But, you know, you need support and you need that to get through this failure. You need the support from the team. You also need it in your personal life. You need something inside of you that either refuses to accept that failure or refuses to stop chasing. You need this sort of like borderline delusional confidence. And when I say borderline delusional, I mean that you have to believe that the results you're seeing and the results that define you to so many are just temporary and, and not necessarily real. You have to believe like in your gut, in your soul, in your bones, that you will bust through and perform. And this is important to a level that you have not reached yet. That takes a lot more than just talent, right? And look, he, he is, Mondesi is far more talented than many players who've had great careers. Um, All-stars, I mean, shoot, Hall of Famers. But he wouldn't be the first with elite physical gifts to fall short. Baseball is just, it's a weird game. Uh, it's still in him, is what I'm saying, but he's got to be the one to pull it out. He's got to be the one to not just put in the work because that's sort of like the Annie to get a seat at the table. He's got to be the one who can't stop believing. And, you know, if you read between the lines of how the Royals have dealt with Mondesi, it's been all encouragement. It's all positive. It's, you know, Dayton Moore telling him that he can be the baseball version of Patrick Mahomes in the city. They're trying to build that belief. They're trying to build that confidence. And look, there's still time for Mondesi to grab it, but there's not as much time as there used to be. You know what I mean? So, okay. Um, I also wanted to say something about the Chiefs. Um, you may have heard that their season opener is Thursday, right? Uh, you may have even heard they won last year's Super Bowl. If you are a true fan, you might even know that Patrick Mahomes and virtually everybody else is back for another year. But uh, I wanted to highlight something that, that Sam McDowell is going to hit on in our football preview section, um, which will be printed, you know, by the way, in Sunday's printed paper and available to subscribers the same day. Uh, there's a lot of confidence in the Chiefs right now, and for obvious reasons, there should be. Uh, you know, they won the Super Bowl. They're, they, everybody's back. Their particular strengths that they have with speed and offense and a unicorn quarterback uh, particularly well positioned for the modern NFL. All their best players are signed long-term. You know, <laughs> there has not been a better time to be a Chiefs fan in 50 years, at least, and maybe never. But this also needs to be said. The Chiefs do not have, like, this right to the next Super Bowl, right? You know, teams don't often repeat for a reason. It's not just, you know, complacency or whatever else you, you always hear about. There's a hundred reasons or a hundred places that, that last season could have gone sideways. And, you know, a lot of the best examples are outside of a team's control, right? Like if, if Mahomes' kneecap just slid like a millimeter more, uh, do you think Matt Moore could have led those comebacks, right? Uh, you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick won in Foxborough on the last day of the season. And without that, the Chiefs wouldn't have had the first round bye, uh, which everyone in that locker room knew in real time was absolutely critical because of how many guys were playing through injuries. You know, just even just take the Super Bowl. Like, how different might that have been if Jimmy Garoppolo hits Emmanuel Sanders on that deep ball late in the fourth quarter? You know, you, you just you have no control over what the other teams do either. Like the Ravens went 14 and two last year. Right. I know we can focus on that playoff game, but they were 14 and two. And, you know, now they, they flopped in the playoffs and they have the exact same motivation going into this season that the Chiefs had last year after that brutal loss in the AFC championship. You know, there's just so many factors going in. Like, uh, you know, you need to have the same energy and focus as the champion. You know, like now that the Chiefs are the Super Bowl champions and they're playing like post Malone and beer pong before a show. And they, they need to have the same focus with that going on as they did when 
people could somewhat reasonably doubt their abilities. And that's just a hard thing to do for humans in general. And look, like I don't mean any of this to say the Chiefs can't win the Super Bowl, right? Like, of course they can. Um, betting favorite, right? But even if you look at the betting lines, like it's six to one, that means it's far like somebody else is going to win the Super Bowl. So, you know, here, here's the thing I keep coming back to, and this gets fogged up by, you know, all the starters returning and the contract extensions and the same coaches back and everything else that's, you know, hashtag run it back. But it's a different team now, and it has to be. You know, like you either you evolve or you get left behind. And, you know, Patrick Mahomes has to be different. That's the way it goes in this league. Um, he has to be different. He has to be better with protections. He has to be better with reading defenses. Um, McCole Hardman has to be more precise with his routes. Travis Kelsey needs to be more consistent with his hands. The offensive linemen need to be better against stunts. You know, the defensive line, the pass rush, they need more consistent pressure. The run defense needs to be more effective. The defensive backs left a lot of plays unmade last year. Um, you know, the play calls need to be different. The tendencies rearranged. Like all these things need to be tweaked. You know, nobody takes up more attention from opponents in the offseason than the Super Bowl champs, right? And there has never been an offseason when opponents had more time than this one. You know, the good thing, at least from the Chiefs' perspective, is that there is a logical case to be made that they never reached their ceiling last year. The offense and whether this was, you know, injuries or different approaches from defenses trying to take off the top, whatever, they just never quite got to what they were the year before. Um, the defensive players and coaches were still learning each other like well into the playoffs. You know, look, I, I guess my main point here to Chiefs fans would be this. Like if, if you are a Chiefs fan, this season is going to be a lot more fun to watch if you start from this baseline of last year is over and this season is different. This team is different. Um, the other 30, 31 teams um, are different. All 32 teams are chasing the same thing and none has like some fundamental right to win at all. That's the approach. That's the way Super Bowls are won. Like they're not defended. You know, you have to go win the next one. Okay, um, before we move on to the rest of the show, um, I've got to mention something. Um, you know, the podcast is free, right? But that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you to join us behind the paywall. Um, you knew this was coming, I think. This is a particularly good time for you to join us. You know, like on Sunday, our football preview section drops. There's a ton of stuff in there for subscribers. Um, Herbie Tiope has a story about Mahomes becoming the face of the NFL as well as a look at, you know, the COVID-19 strategies by the Chiefs in the league. Blair went in depth on the 10 days that changed and defined the Chiefs offseason. Sam McDowell has the, you know, the dynasty thing I mentioned earlier, but you know, also the case for how the Chiefs' unique roster construction is an advantage going forward. Vahe goes long on, you know, jet uh, jet chip wasp, um, including some insight that he got from a one-on-one conversation with Andy Reid. And he also has something about why Patrick Mahomes isn't satisfied. Um, two columns from me in there too. One's actually on the website now, um, the case that, that Mahomes had these specific life experiences as a kid that have made him who he is now, including, and I just laughed when he mentioned this, but a fight that he remembered with his dad when he was like six years old that I swear to God I had a few weeks back with my own six-year-old. Um, I also wrote about Mitchell Schwartz, who is as good at his job as anyone, but for whatever reason just isn't often recognized as such. I read a theory about why that is with him, and you know, I thought his perspective on that was interesting. Straight up, guys, like this is the most original and independent Chiefs content you can find in any one place. And it's produced by the people who are around the team every day, home and road, um, or road, <laughs> at least when there's not a global pandemic going on, right? If you're already a subscriber, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you're not, like I said, there's never been a better time. Uh, it's the best deal in town, $30 for a year of our sports coverage at KansasCity.com. $50 for everything we're producing, including from our amazing news side reporters. Uh, the information is 
on our website, easily accessible. If you need a link, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook or email smellinger at kcstar.com. Okay, cool. Quick break here, and then we'll come back to answer some questions. If you'd like to participate, leave a question for next week's show. I would love for you to do that. Please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone call anytime, 816-234-4365. Okay, quick break, and we're back with those questions. I'm just calling in response to your For Your Ears podcast that we received this evening. I'm Pat. And I guess my question might be this. Why is and how did Kansas City become so fortunate to have the ownership for all three major teams, pro football, major league baseball, and sporting Kansas City and soccer, with such solid expert, uh, humane, uh, just outstanding leadership traits. Uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, if you have any comments on that in the column, I think it might be appropriate. Thanks for all you do. I like this question from Pat, um, and let's go through them one by one. Uh, Sporting Kansas City was straight up saved by Neil Patterson and Cliff Illig uh, when they bought it from Lamar Hunt, um, who, look, he did more for sports in Kansas City than anyone is likely to ever do. But Patterson and Illig did what Lamar came to accept that he couldn't. You know, they professionalized it, they brought it into the 21st century, and they created this top shelf experience at what is now Children's Mercy Park. Patterson and Illig, they they built a powerhouse together with Cerner, and they turned sporting from, you know, a relocation candidate into what MLS Commissioner Don Garber once called the league's greatest success story. Uh, My favorite part of the process was that they did it with this just maniacal focus on the fan experience. That is what they thought about at every decision. Um, They actively reached out to fans, they listened to fans, they acted upon what they heard from fans, and then they built something that more people wanted to be a part of. You know, Clark Hunt has had a really interesting go here as the chief's chairman. And I'm actually writing more about this next week. But, you know, he was struggling at first. And I don't know if it was inexperience, the weight of running his dad's and his family's baby. Maybe it was the enormity of the challenge, you know, sort of modernizing a franchise that had been run in a very old school way. Traditional, you know, almost like a mom and pop kind of way. You know, but just on the football side, he hired one coach in Herm Edwards who never really gained traction and another in Todd Haley, who a person, you know, with street sense or better people skills should have seen could not work productively with Scott Pioli. You know, that was a disaster and it was made worse by Clark not being around as much. Pioli was the top football decision. um, And so a lot of problems Clark just didn't know about. But then came Clark's brightest moment. Um, you know, he replaced Haley and Pioli with Andy Reid and John Dorsey. He reorganized the power structure to ensure more open communication. Um, there are a lot of things that had to happen after, but all the success that Chiefs have had these last six or seven years, it began with that one moment. It changed everything. With John Sherman, um, it, you know, it's too early to know what he'll be. You know, basically all we know, or I should say all of what we know is encouraging, um, but he just hasn't owned the Royals long enough to know what he'll be going forward. 
But I do think Pat hit on something here in the question, you know, this idea that all three teams are run by men with really strong leadership and commitment. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything specific about Kansas City here, actually, but, you know, there are some similarities between the guys, you know, and, and that's especially true when you look at Patterson, Illig, and Sherman. You know, like Patterson died three years ago from cancer, but, you know, all three of these men are entrepreneurs. Um, they be, they built billion-dollar companies from nothing, and they did it without cutting corners. That requires a hell of a lot. Um, intelligence, guts, belief, like all these things, but also leadership. You need the ability to sell what you're doing to people with no inherent incentive to believe you. That's a hell of an accomplishment, right? That is very powerful. And you can see how that might translate to running a major professional sports team. You know, Clark Hunt is different in that way, obviously. Like, you know, he inherited the team from his, you know, billionaire father who was, you know, the one who founded the team with help, obviously, from being born to his own wealthy father. You know, I can't say that Clark would have risen this high without that head start. You know, the odds are pretty astronomical against that, right? But um, I do think he's equipped with a specific and valuable business sense. And, you know, he learned the business of the NFL from the inside for years and years in a way that few are privileged to see. And, And that's a powerful thing as well. The thing I think about the most with Clark is this idea about stability. He showed a lot in the broader guiding of a team that had become almost definitionally unstable on his watch to what we see today. And, you know, look, the public opinion of sports owners can be really fickle. But I wonder if there's ever been a point in our city's history where the primary caretakers have been this collectively popular. Um, You know, the the only thing I can think of, and this was before my time, but I wonder if you have to go all the way back to the late 60s. You know, the Chiefs were on top of the world and, you know, Ewing Kaufman had just taken such a leap of faith to buy and start the Royals. That's the only time I can think of that they can compare in popularity of the owners to to what we have right now. Okay, here's a uh, a different (laughs) uh, sports owner question. Rick from uh, Ruston, Virginia. What's a Midwest view of Dan Snyder and the Washington Football Club? Uh, would he be hated as much? He had a winning record given the recent uh, Me Too act, um, questions that have now come up uh, regarding the football club. I'll be looking for your answer. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Rick, I love this question. There is a misperception of what Kansas City and the Midwest are, or at least I believe there's a misperception. Uh, we're supposed to be, you know, like kind and generous and patient and all these things. And I hope, I think we, we are some of those things. And, um, you know, I know what Philadelphia is, New York, you know, the reputation of some of these other fan bases around the country. But, you know, just looking at facts, you know, how many fan bases are accused of cheering a quarterback's injury? You know, like how many fan bases have, you know, flown flags above their stadium in the last 10 years demanding the GM be fired? You know, how many fan bases turned one of the franchise's best hitters, Mike Sweeney, into a man who is regularly booed at home? You know, nobody wants to admit this now, but a lot of people in town here, even some in the media who quickly caught amnesia, were loudly calling for Ned Yost and Dayton Moore to be fired a few months before the 2014 playoffs. You know, look, I'm, I'm not saying fans here are harder than another place. I don't know how you can measure that kind of thing, to tell you the truth. But, you know, Elvis Gerback, Lynn Elliott, Mike Sweeney, Matt Castle, Scott Pioli, Clark Hunt, David Glass. There's a lot of people who would have stories of being crushed pretty hard by fans and media here. Once, and uh, sorry, this still makes me laugh, but Matt Castle told me <laughs> about being in the bathroom at a restaurant here once. And uh, you know those places where they hang the sports page over the urinal? Well, it was there that he read a column in which I called him frumpy. And, and I think I believe I compared him to a rickshaw or something. I still think the column is fair. 
Um, but I did apologize for the uh, the invasion of privacy there. Um, anyway, I guess this is me saying I'm not sure Snyder would be treated a lot differently here. Um, he's an awful owner. He's an awful leader. And if what we're hearing is true, he's less than an honorable person, right? I do feel for fans in Washington on something, though. They, they are as proud of that team there as Kansas Cityans are of the Chiefs. And, you know, I've seen and felt up close what it's like when a beloved civic institution like that, you know, something so important to so many, so visible when it turns into a disgrace. I've seen what that does. You know, sometimes I wonder, though, honestly, like whether those emotions are even stronger in a place like Kansas City. Um, you know, just being honest, there's less going on here. You know, I mean, look, we've, we've got excellent barbecue, right? Uh, but they've got the government of the freaking United States in Washington. Um, you know, we have more reason to act on these things in a lot of ways. So anyway, okay, uh, happier question. Um, I like the story in here too. Hey, Sam, this is Tyler Will from North Kansas City. I have the honor of being your second ever call-in, and I both love and apologize for that. Um, moving on, I just wanted to thank you genuinely for being such a rational voice. I am a person that is often prone to a little bit of sensationalism, and I love it when the people whose opinions I value most are a clear-speaking, rational voice. So thank you, thank you. Um, moving past that, I was just listening to an old podcast of yours where you asked people to call in with their sports stories, and I got a little um, reminiscent, and so here's mine. It's um, more of a collective story. Basically, when I was a child, very young, I was a massive Chiefs fan. And as the years went on, I kind of had a separation. And I don't know exactly why that was, but it fell out of my interest. And right around the time when Alex Smith was drafted to the Chiefs, my body encouraged me to get back into it as he had been a lifelong Chiefs fan. And so my memory, that is just so wonderfully rich to me, is all the effort that I put into knowing the Chiefs history and talking with the fans all the way up to going to my first ever game at Arrowhead and just being overcome with the emotion of that, all the way to eventually getting to see the AFC Championship game, seeing the Super Bowl. So it really is more of a collective memory, but it just was so wonderful to remember that journey and, and just the so that's all I wanted to say, and thank you so much. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much, man. Um, this is really cool to hear, and um, to the rest of you, my apologies for the the, uh, the indirect back padding here, but um, I love hearing stories like this, too. Like, we're, we're all different. We all come to this place from a different angle, um, but we also have a lot in common when it comes to how and why we love sports. I've got a thousand stories, as you can imagine. Um, they're probably all part of why I became a sports fan, why I'll be a sports fan until I die, why I hope my kids become sports fans. I remember the feeling when I made my first three-pointer, you know, realizing like in this weird way that that's like the exact thing, you know, same ball, same distance, same height of the goal, the exact same thing that the guys on TV do. I remember feeling like a king when I hit my first home run over the fence in Little League. You know, I remember sitting in the upper deck at Royal Stadium when they booed Reggie Jackson. Um, I felt like that was the coolest thing in the world. I remember, you know, the overpowering noise of Arrowhead Stadium during a night game in the 90s. Um, you know, like all of these things. And in a lot of ways, like having this job has only made that bond like tighter. And, you know, I talk sometimes on here about how like 
this weird job, it, ch- it changes the way that you look at sports. Uh, not better, not worse, just different. You know, I can't root in the same ways. Like I am just not good enough to be able to do that in my job. But one of the coolest things is hearing stories from people like you, people like Tyler, people like all of you guys. You know, I've heard stories about, you know, a man and a woman meeting randomly at a tailgate, um, fall in love, raise kids together. I've heard about like grieving sons and daughters, you know, with that just indescribable feel of being close to their deceased parents during games. I've heard stories of broken relationships healed with sports, you know, either as a bond or a conversation starter. And like, let's not be crazy. Like these types of things can exist with other hobbies or interests. But I just, I don't think that it's as common or as strong as it is in sports. I'm I'm probably biased there, but that's been my experience. So anyway, thanks for sharing these stories. You know, not just Tyler here, but so many of you at other times. Uh, It's been great. It is a privilege. I appreciate you letting me into your lives, really. Um, Okay, uh, great questions and conversation again this week. Thanks again. One more time, if you'd like to participate in the show, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. 816-234-4365. Put it in your phone call anytime. Uh, One more break, and then we're back here with parts of a conversation with Andy Reid. Okay, guys, uh, here's the bonus section. Another week, another conversation you're not hearing in other places. This time it's Andy Reid, the 62-year-old lock for the Hall of Fame um, as the Chiefs prepare for Thursday's season opener. This is from a conversation a few of us had with Reid earlier in the week. Um, I've always found him to be like looser, less on edge in these settings, and that really translated through Zoom the same way it always did when we met with him in his room at the Missouri Western Dorms. But Uh, A question by Nate Taylor of The Athletic put something in my mind. You know, Andy had talked about Patrick Mahomes' progression, not just with reading defenses, but with, you know, little nuances like shifting protections, things like that. I actually have a column coming up on that same point that hits on that. But uh, anyway, I asked Andy where Mahomes is with those nuances compared to other quarterbacks he's had entering their fourth year in the league. Yeah, well, I'd probably tell you he's ahead. Um, Again, things have kind of evolved offensively. um, And... He, he, this, I think this is where the foundations are. Brett Favre ran the option in high school. He goes to Ole Miss and they threw the ball a little bit, but they, you know, they're still run the ball. Um, so you get Brett Favre and he doesn't have all of those years of throwing the football. Pat Mahomes throwing the football every, every play, you know, in college. So, and in high school, he was doing kind of the same type of thing. So the kids that you get now are more familiar with the pass game. Um, and, and probably a little bit more advanced than, than the guys when I first started. Don McNabb probably ran five different offenses in, in, in college. It was, uh, it was complicated and, and they, they did a ton of things with them. And so, uh, just focusing in on one thing and, and working with it, um, uh, I think the, the kids today are probably better equipped for the throwing game and, and pro football. But on top of that, um, you get this kid that, wants to be the best, is willing to work at it, wants you to give him information, and is very intelligent. So, and, and that, and he's a good leader on, you know, on top of that. So he's got, he has the full package, but you're still going to see growth. Yeah. I mean, he's a young guy and, 
the, the longer he goes and, and, um, uh, it'll become, uh, even more familiar to him. When Reed is out of his like normal in season tunnel vision, he's so good with stuff like this. Um, you know, all NFL coaches are smart and dedicated and all those things, but um, there's not a lot who can pull out like personal experiences to compare Mahomes to someone like Brett Favre or Donovan McNabb with, you know, little details like how many offenses McNabb ran in college or, you know, that Favre was in, in charge of a run heavy offense in college. And, and by the way, like Favre went to Southern Miss, not Ole Miss. But anyway, um, <laughs> speaking of that, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't talk about Favre in college and Patrick Mahomes without mentioning this story that Pat Mahomes, uh, Patrick's father, told me. Uh, Pat was a hell of an athlete in his day, obviously, uh, with an 11-year big league career. But he was also a high school quarterback, um, you know, good enough to be a, a major college recruit. And, you know, Pat tells the story of being in a meeting with these college guys where everyone said their their name, where they were from, their 40-time position, all these things. And uh, Pat was being recruited as a quarterback. So he was paying particularly close attention to the defensive players and was realizing that the guys like, you know, 50 or 70 pounds heavier than him were listening 40 times faster than him. You know, and the guys his size were, were much faster. And, you know, the math just wasn't adding up is the way he put it. So he focused on baseball. And you guys, that happened at Southern Miss. And when Favre was, I believe, entering his sophomore season. So, you know, Pat Mahomes, like the eventual father to Patrick Mahomes, was being recruited to compete with or back up Brett Favre, who his son would eventually be compared to. Small world, right? But, okay. Um, I also asked Reed about how he monitors, you know, a sort of like overall focus within a team and coaching staff. And, you know, this isn't a complacency thing necessarily. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's it's more about like coaching a group of people while, you know, a virus wrecks normal life and a social justice movement takes hold in the locker room and all the other potential deterrents to a group achieving its best. Um, I was just curious, like the cues that he might look for uh, to see when football is suffering. And then not just that, but the process of addressing that, you know, apologize for the calendar alert that hits the computer here in the middle of his answer. But here we go. Yeah. So I think it's again, it's probably the foundation that's set. So before any of those things hit, I shouldn't say before any of the things hit, but the COVID hit um, that um, you keep open communication. So whether it's with your players committee or whether it's just with the guys, I mean, um, you, 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 you let them know that you're willing to listen. And, and, um, and that's how, you know, that's how we've kind of done since we got here. So I've kept it, kept it where, and I, I always tell them that, listen, I, I'm not a grudge holder at all. That's not how I roll. Um, I, I understand we're humans and sometimes we're going to say things or do things that, um, with it, that, that, uh, I'm not going to agree with, I get, uh, but I'm not going to hold that against you. So put it out on the table rather than hold it in and let it fester, put it out on the table and let's try to see if we can't work, work out whatever that problem is, whether, you know, and I've had everything from, you know, what, which car should I buy to, you know, bigger, obviously bigger, bigger things I've talked to players about. I mean, that's, that's kind of where you fall in as a as a coach. What I like about this answer or approach is it's basically what we should all be doing, right? Like you don't deal with a problem when it happens. Um, or I guess I should say like the most effective way to deal with a problem does not come when that problem happens. Uh, you know, the most effective way to deal with a problem is to put the work in before the problem comes. It's like a relationship, right? Um, I mean, I think about this all the time. If I take my wife for granted, for instance, if I'm not listening, don't 
want to do things with her, don't support her, don't try to help or serve her however possible. Like, what happens when we run into a money problem or, you know, we have this major disagreement with something in, in our marriage or our family? Um, you know, same thing in reverse. If I'm not feeling connected or, you know, a problem comes up, I'm going to be more likely to carry some of that extra weight into the attempted solution. You know, maybe I blame her instead of starting from neutral. Maybe I tell her it's hers to deal with instead of together. Uh, those things snowball. That's how little problems become big. You know, pull back out, broad picture here. That's how a lot of those problems created inside the organization before Reed arrived. No communication, no trust. People, you know, sort of bunkered down in their little silo, dug in, protecting their little piece of land instead of working together for the more collective good. Um, these are simple things, but I think the experiences for most of us, if we're honest, is that they're difficult to keep up. You know, it's it's harder to do these things than, than it is to say them. You know, one reason Reed has been so successful. Anyway, um, I love when these connections can be made between sports and the real world. Okay, uh, that's the show this week. Thanks to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting it together. Thanks to everybody who called in. Thanks to Andy Reed for the insight. And especially big thanks to you for listening. Uh, whether you've been with us the whole time um, or just recently found us with the better delivery. Again, I hope we're worth the time and we'll try to do it again next week. Be safe and be kind. <laughs>